This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio, a weekly show on sustainability topics brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher and me, Samuel Mann. Shane's not here tonight, but I am joined from Bishop's Castle in Shropshire in the UK by Daphne Ducrow. Welcome, Daphne. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's go back to the start. Where did you grow up? Um, I'm originally from Canada, so I moved to the UK in 2014 to do my PhD, but I grew up in wide open spaces in Quebec and Ontario and always on farmland. Um, So moving to Toronto and then London was um, a very, very different landscape for us. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I think I wanted to be an artist at one point and a vet at another point. Um, and then I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I stayed in academia and stayed in academia and stayed in academia. <laughs> and then I ended up being a farmer <laughs> where you're an artist and a vet all the time. So what was it like growing? Was it on farms across is that the eastern side of Canada, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So I grew up in the Anglophone part of Quebec in the eastern townships. And it was kind of a hobby farm with 12 acres, um, which is uh, it was a really beautiful landscape. And we had all sorts of sort of random uh, horses, ponies, donkeys, dogs, cats, um, and lots of space just to explore and be a kid. Uh, and then moved to a farm in Ontario that was 92 acres. So a pretty sizable plot. But um, I think my family just rented it out to farmers who napalmed the soil with Roundup and planted corn over and over and over. Um, so I think that may have had something to do with um, how I wanted to grow food in a different way. Well, because you could see from a relatively early age that that wasn't the, the thing for you? Uh, I think the warnings of don't go on the field this week resonated. <laughs> um, so when your parents recognize that it's poison, but it's right in your backyard, um, yeah, maybe maybe something crawled into my headspace there. Isn't it weird that we've got ourselves into that that position where that's the thing to do? It is. It doesn't quite make a lot of sense. I think it went. Uh, it was focused on efficiency and and feeding the multitude, but um, forgetting that most of the world is fed by small farmers. So from there to Toronto, and then to the PhD. Yeah, so I ended up doing my master's in Toronto looking at rooftop urban agriculture and how they were changing local policies to enable that sort of thing in Toronto. So I got to talk to different uh, initiatives on rooftops and different organizations that were trying to uh, achieve various community ends um, and objectives through rooftop urban agriculture, which is pretty cool. Um, I've just put a green roof on my house this week, which is kind of a throwback to that, and that's cool. And uh, then 
I was put in touch with the Center for Food Policy by my master's advisor, and he said, I think you'd get on well with these guys. And so I came to talk uh, one August, which was uh, a fortunate sort of meeting because my advisor was about to go on holidays. And we hooked up and we got just got on really well. And he said, I think you should apply. I think you would get in and I think you should apply for funding. So I did. And it all lined up. Um, so in September 2014, I moved to London and got to start doing my research, which was on uh, sustainable local food production in UK local food policies. I'll come back to talking about that. But tell me about your green roof. Um, it's, uh, it's nothing you know, sophisticated or fancy. It's just rolled out sedums. But sedums are edible and they'll make it into our salad bags for our VegBox customers this season. So that'll be something fun. But they flower and they're great for pollinators and the environmental services from them are great because we get a heck of a lot of rain. So they'll, it'll act like a nice big sponge and um, honestly just great for our bees and really great for my kid looking out her window. Do you have to do anything to the roof to put that on? I was, I was, I was thinking you must have to waterproof the roof, but of course that's the point of a roof. Yeah, well, it's got a few layers. Um, so it's got... Um, yeah, a moisture barrier, and then it's got a kind of thick fleece, uh, and then some some substrate, just a, a little bit like a, a few centimeters of substrate, so the roots can grow in. Uh, and then it's just rolls, like almost like sod that you put down. Um, so it's pretty pretty simple to install, really. And you have to water it. Oh no, it just uh, well because sedums are kind of happy in drought anyway. They're succulents, so they retain a lot of water. Um, they're pretty happy in, in most conditions and they'll just absorb water when we get rain events. Cool. So yeah. distracted from talking about the, the, the PhD, local food production. Why is that important? People got to eat. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think for, for so many reasons, people have become very reliant on conventional food systems and food retail systems. We've seen in the last year how big global events can shake those up and we can't really take um, the retail offering for granted all the time. Um, it was good that people had that reminder. We've had a lot of interest in the farm and why we're doing this from the media and from the community in the last year. Um, I think people want a sense of reconnection to food and food production and understanding how food is grown. Um, I've had middle-aged professional women come to the farm and say, oh, are those carrots? And they're pointing at a trellis of peas climbing up. Uh, so there's a very real sense of disconnection. And it's not like Jamie Oliver says, just kids thinking a potato is a grapefruit or something like that. Um, so I think the connection element, the education element, um, the, the climate change and carbon emissions element from international transport of food, if we can grow things locally well, why are we shipping them in from other places and shipping what we produce out to those same places? It doesn't make sense. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why local food is important. And it tastes really good when it's fresh. <laughs> why does that connection matter? I mean, there's lots of things that we do that it doesn't. we don't know how this thing is produced and it doesn't really matter. I think just because we don't think of it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Um, I think... Having uh, an awareness means that we have a deeper sense of belonging and care and a sense of the value, the intrinsic value of something. Um, we don't have to necessarily be, be ignorant about these things. It's, it's quite often chosen ignorance, isn't it? Um, 
So I think it improves the quality of something um, when you know its provenance and you can appreciate it. You can appreciate the time and work and that have gone into it and the landscape that it comes from. It's a, a more intimate connection, I suppose. But presumably you want it to be not just local, but a different way of farming. There's, there's no point at being local if you can't walk on the fields because they've sprayed it. Exactly. So it's uh, the local trap way of thinking that local does not necessarily mean sustainable. Um, local means potentially more visible and local means that you might be able to influence it a little bit more. Um, a big thing that I found in my research is that we easily recognize global level problems, but we are almost knocked back in the sense that they are so big and intimidating that people struggle to, to figure out how to address them. Um, by looking at things at the smaller scale at the local level, we can say, well, in our town, we can address social issues um, by bringing together people in a community garden, for example, or we can address economic issues by encouraging more people to train in, um, in agriculture, or we can address environmental things by training up our farmers and trying to make networks of responsible production um, and, and talking to people about values in food and farming um, where they can get a real sense of, of connection by seeing you're talking about the sense of place and farmers that I've spoken to have a very strong sense of place. And I wonder if the, the farmers that, that you grew up in the fields beside, did they, how did they justify their sense of place, their sense of caring for the land and the, the use of the heavy chemicals? Oh, I can only speculate because I was about 12 years old at the time. Um, but I think it's generational and grandfather gets wind of an innovation and it will save us time and money. And it comes into the, the family process and then it gets taken up and perpetuated, I think, to a degree. Uh, I think a lot of people took up chemical agriculture uh, because it was touted as the newest technology um, and didn't really think a whole lot in terms of the the outcomes and now people are questioning that and they're seeing that but they're hooked on the junk and it's uh it's a tricky position to be in and they've got quite often heavy investments financial investments and while you can show quite often that it's actually more profitable to, to have a less heavy throughput um, yeah. organization it's really hard to explain that to the bank yes particularly when you're in deep but the the voices in well in our area there's some really interesting cases of uh, conventional farmers who were tenant farmers um, in one particular case um, there was a there's a beef farmer for example he was a tenant farmer on a historic estate which was bought by a new family who said go organic or go and he decided to follow through and go organic and now he's advocating for this and talking to anybody who will listen about how he's far more profitable he can sell his meat for more um, his landscape is improved by doing this so he's um, he's becoming a real advocate um, for the the organic conversion movement i suppose in regenerative agriculture what's it going to take to shift that mainstream of agriculture there's people like you doing that the market garden local market garden 
is that operating as a as a beacon for how the the, the larger scale agriculture can work or this larger scale perhaps the problem it's not the larger scale that's the problem it's the way that it's happening i think i don't know it seems to go it seems to look like larger scale and conventional agriculture go hand in hand right but i don't think i mean the local farmers in our area don't see us as farmers we're growers um I'm a girl that grows vegetables to them because they've been here for a long time and we're not farmers. Um, and that's fine. That's okay. I'm pretty, pretty okay with being a small scale grower and a market gardener. Um, what's it going to take for them all to shift? I wish I knew. I think a lot of people wish that they knew. Um, soil collapse, maybe (laughs) it's going to have to be pretty drastic. Um, I, I really wish I knew. Um, I think, the more, I don't know, generational shift may be key. Um, I've also spoken to a lot of people my age who are taking over or looking to take over the family farm and getting a lot of pushback for wanting to be uh, organic or changing the method of their family farm. Um, it seems as though it's um, almost a disloyalty to the way that the family has done it because it means that their decisions were wrong and it's an insult. Um, so... I'm not, I wish I knew. I really wish I knew. We're doing it on a small scale. I think the language of regenerative agriculture is appealing to a lot of people. Um, Subsidies for changing your land and rewilding your land are important. Um, In the UK, there are a number of wealthy landowners that own the majority of the land. If you can win over those individuals and they talk to their friends who they, they socialize with, and they're on the same wavelength. Um, that's an interesting domino effect, and one that um, is potentially very slowly taking place in the UK with a few key people. So, what's the shift in the shift to you, you said the language of regenerative agriculture? H- how is the language changing? I think it's framing it less as woo-woo hippie organic to farming and and different ways of mob grazing, for example, and rotational grazing that appeal. Um, And it seems perhaps, I think the organic movement was framed as quite combative and anti-farmer and oppositional for a long time. Um, But if you're talking in terms of regenerative agriculture, soil health, um, herd health, and profitability, I think it reframes that whole debate. Does the connection between the the land and the people, the social aspects, get into that conversation? Um, that's not being a, a large-scale conventional farmer. That's difficult for me to say. I think the sense of place is really important uh, and that they care very much for their communities and care very much for their landscapes. Um, I can say in my experience, um, I'm from away and I'm a young woman farmer who is an immigrant and new to the community, um, I will never be a local. So I will probably never get that same recognition um, that, uh, that those farmers have for you know, their, their local other farmers. So other than waiting a thousand years before you are a local, mm-hmm. what, what can you do? Is it just a matter of getting on and, and, and living a better life, showing an alternative? Um, I think it's an option. It's... Um, Showing an alternative draws people to what we're doing. We have a lot of people interested, a lot of people coming here to learn. And I once asked my neighbor, uh, you know, what does he get his volunteers to do? And he said, volunteers, I can't get anybody to 
work here. I can't pay anybody to work on my farm. What are you talking about, volunteers? And I was explaining that I'm, I'm inundated with people who want to volunteer on my farm, which is a wonderful problem to have. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I, I mean, sorry, that is, just, I, that, that the fact that you have volunteers does suggest that it is something which is resonating with people. Yeah, I think because we're small scale, we aim, I mean, as an offshoot of my research um, on sustainability, bringing the community in and making it a connection point, an education resource, um, uh, a way to make healthy food accessible to people. Um, It's been a focus and people see that and that message gets reinforced as they see our veg at the food bank. Um, as they come to the farm because we have a public footpath that runs next to our farm. So we talk to people over the hedge and we tell them what we're doing and they see it. Um, And if they want to know how we do things, we invite them and we say, come have a a look around and come have a a walk. Um, We're involved in a lot of different things like developing our local community food resilience plan because obviously my research background lends to that uh, and I'm able to speak to a few different groups uh, and and food groups in our area. So I think people see that we're seeking a wider connection and that food can be used um, in different ways than just, I don't know, the the taken for granted offering in the supermarket, um, that um, they can see what we're doing. And making food and well-produced food visible is an important reminder to people. Let's take the tragically hip Wheat Kings. Why do you like this one? Uh, nostalgia, I suppose. After dark, 
walls are lined all yellow, gray, sinister. Hung with pictures of a parent's prime minister. We change and pretty things. A nation whispers we always knew that he'd go free. They add you can't be fond of living in the past. Cause if you are, then there's no way that you're gonna last. We You're listening to Sustainable Lens. We're talking with Daphne Ducrow in Bishop's Castle, Shropshire. How's Bishop's Castle doing? Oh, ticking along, ticking along. It's, uh, I don't think it's very exciting. Not as exciting as usual these days, but just cute as anything all the time. Anyway. How did you find yourself there? Um, we, we had a holiday fall through because one of our dogs was a bit bonkers. Um, so we ha- we got a holiday let that would allow dogs, uh, since our dog sitter fell through because of said bonkers dog. Um, and we thought, ooh, this place is kind of nice. And a year or so later, when we decided that maybe we wanted to start a market garden, we thought, where the heck could we do that? Oh, wait, that place was kind of neat. And we saw a few properties and found one that was vaguely flat and not flooded and had a, about a 10-minute walk to the pub. So that was the clincher. And for people that don't know, it's kind of on the Welsh border. That's right. Yeah. So we uh, we get some rain pretty frequently, um, but rolling hills and an awfully pretty place. And uh, a place which has been, well, the, the, the settlement is what, a thousand years old or something. And the, I presume it's been farmed for, for longer than that. It's interesting when we start talking about, you, you're not talking about permaculture, but those notions of permaculture being being that we can do this forever and the farming systems there have lasted a very long time but did they change did did they was it because they became industrialized are are we going back to something that was before that Uh, i think in our area there's a big mix of arable crops uh, which are very much subject to the chemical agricultural practices, um, but a lot of 
grazing land because on the hilly bits, sheep are the only thing that really makes sense. So people stand, tend to stick to sheep and cattle and then they do their, their fodder crops for their animals. Um, so there's not a whole lot of horticultural production. And so that makes our little micro farm kind of unique in this area. And so I'm looking at your website as you're, you're speaking, the how to buy our veg, is it? So I see that you describe it as community supported agriculture. That's right. That's going to take an explanation. All right. Um, well, it's a model that has really taken hold in North America. So in the States and Canada, um, community supported agriculture or CSA is a way of getting a share of the farm's production over the course of the season, um, come what may. So if it's a great season, bumper crops, you get loaded up. If you suffer from droughts or floods or hurricanes or locusts, um, you struggle along with the farmer and you make do. Uh, so it's a way of sharing risk because you pay at the front of the season. So the farmer knows what their income is. They know how much they can pay themselves. They know how much they can invest in infrastructure or staff or buying in compost or seeds. Um, so it allows the farmer a, more, a greater measure of security and it allows the farmer to share the bounty with the community. So they, they, they pay up front or they pay a fixed cost through the year for whatever yeah, you can case, produce. Exactly. So in our case, uh, we produce veg from April to October. So they get roughly 26 weeks of veg at um, 13 pounds per box. And that's just calculated. So it's one lump sum at the beginning of the season. Um, so people can do a full share where they get it weekly, a half share where they do it fortnightly. Or what we've brought in this season is the work exchange share because so many people have been impacted by the pandemic uh, and lost their incomes or been just financially uh, adversely affected. So we, we thought that that would be a way to make it more accessible to people. Um, so they can come, they can work for a couple of hours on the farm in a week, and then they get their veg box the next day or the next week. Cool. And you're also selling through farmers markets, those sorts of places? That's it. So last year we lost the income from farmers markets and restaurants. So we leaned pretty heavily on veg boxes um, and we realized that we were able to produce quite a number more veg boxes than we had originally thought. So um, in 2019, we packed 300 veg boxes over the course of the season. Last year it was 700. And we realized that we really love doing veg boxes because it's a wonderful way to connect with our community. Um, but farmers markets are great for marketing. Restaurants are really nice just to let people know that you can do wonderful things with our veg and we have great relationships with our local chefs. Um, and we also provide um, our surplus veg to the local food bank and we sort of make surplus veg intentionally for the local food bank because it's been a rough year. It has indeed. How has COVID affected the, the process? I suppose because you have volunteers, you have to be particularly careful. You've got more people coming onto the farm than you would normally expect. Yeah, so last year we had <clears throat> we had very few volunteers. Um, it was myself and one other full-time staff member so and, and a couple of volunteers. But really it was um, very cautious and very moderate under the circumstances. This year, as things are easing, um, we're able to do our work exchange program on a couple of selected days and just sort of spread people out over those days. So it's, it's safe. People are able to bring their own tools 
and uh, and work outdoors. So in a sense, after what's been a, a long kind of miserable winter for us, uh, a lot of people are really keen to get out, do something physical, do something social, even if it's distanced, um, and and dig in to do something. Um, I think because a lot of people have been looking at their four walls and thinking, gosh, the world feels a bit broken. Um, how can we fix this? And a lot of people have said, maybe it's food. Maybe we can do something through our community and food. And then they get wind of us and, uh, and they want to connect. So it's been a, a really special time, actually, because we've been able to figure out a lot of interesting collaborations. Is it warming up yet? Yeah, yeah, it's starting to get uh, get pretty nice in the tunnels. So it's uh, there's hope. There's hope on the horizon for the veg. Do you have things growing through the through the winter? When when, when do you have to first get out and get planting? Um, I started things inside on my kitchen table, um, probably late January. Uh, tomatoes, peppers, aubergines, and um, put them out in the greenhouse today. So it was warm enough to pot them up and put them outside because it's sort of about 15 degrees in the greenhouses during the day and uh, not going into the minuses at night anymore. So it's, uh, it's looking a lot better. Lots of stuff germinating in the tunnels just under their own steam. I've heard it said that farmers are by design resilient because they are involved in something with such an uncertain future during the year that if, if you don't have that built-in resilience, then you shouldn't be a farmer. Do you have that? Is, is, is it a huge optimistic streak? It's, there's always a bit of anxiety at the beginning of the season. There's a little part of me that always goes, nothing's going to grow. Oh, God, what are we going to do? And then I'm just struck by the incredible abundance of it all. And it takes me sort of until our 10th veg box to go, okay, it's going to be okay. We're going to have 12 things every veg box when we say we're going to commit to eight so we're going to be okay. Um, I think part of that is that my approach to just about anything is massive overkill. So I overcompensate in a really significant way as a buffer. And that does help. Do you have a big spreadsheet or something of the logistics of how do you get eight things in a food box all the time? Because I know in my garden, you know, we, have, really... we have one thing growing and we have to eat that all that week and with nothing else. And then the next week, it's something else. But you have to be more organized than that. Um, I think experience has helped. Um, I, I should have a big spreadsheet. In fact, I have a semi-started version of that spreadsheet, but I also have a three-year-old. And so a lot of things are semi-started and not finished. And so we've kind of gotten to the point where massive overkill strikes again, and we're just doing our successions um, just quite aggressively and it'll work out it'll be fine but yeah maybe i'll retroactively make the spreadsheet to make it look good and then next year i'll have a spreadsheet that i could go back on i say this so, every year <laughs> so how do you describe the 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 approach that you're taking in the in the growing you, you talked about regenerative agriculture you just do you describe yours as regenerative um, I'd say we we kind of pick and choose. I mean, we're not certified organic, but we practice according to organic principles of the Soil Association in the UK. Um, it just it costs money to certify, and we don't want to pass that cost on to our customers. Um, I think sustainability is a focus, but sustainability, as you well know, is just so wibbly wobbly that it can mean anything. Um, so we came at it from the lens of okay, let's think about it from the you know. The, the 
thought of sustainability, but ethics and values and taste and connection and politics and governance and all of those things, because sustainability is so much bigger than just the standard three pillars. Um, but just reading and reading makes you think about, makes you realize just uh, how we've lost so much diversity, um, not just in terms of species diversity or diversity or biodiversity, but just in landscape. So we apply permaculture principles like uh, having a forest garden. Um, we've got a strip of forest garden down the side of our property. We've got edible hedges throughout our uh, the market garden space, uh, spaces for pollinators. We've got our own bees. Um, there was a place that wanted to be a pond, so we made it a pond. And now we're getting newts and frog spawn, and it's um, it's become an ecosystem again. Um, so we're trying to bring in a lot of different elements, um, and including seed saving, because we've got the UK's Heritage Seed Library, um, and I think seed saving is a really important skill to learn to close the loop of our own reliance on, on seed companies, and it's important to have sources of, of seed security in communities. So um, it's a matter of, of gathering skills as much as gathering different landscapes in and around the area and different elements of those. So what are you doing about the the nasty chemicals, the the need to fertilize and to manage crops, uh, to manage pests in some way? Uh, we don't use them because we don't need them. Um, we have trap plants like nasturtiums that the caterpillars go to first. We have marigolds that help with um, carrot root fly. We have a really fine mesh that keeps off the cabbage white moths and the flea beetles, and we use poo, we use compost. We make, uh, make as much of our own compost to feed the soil as we can. Um, we do low till and no till insofar as we can to keep the soil happy and healthy. And we just keep putting organic content into it. And, um, and we use green manures, so uh, a combination of things. And, and we touch wood, haven't had significant enough problems to have lost any any single individual crop we just have a lot of diversity um as i say we've got you know for any given veg box we've got 12 items usually because if, if something fails um we've got the bounce back factor we've got resilience because we have variety you talked about ethics and values and taste can you taste ethics can you taste value <laughs> um People who we provide food to, our customers, our neighbors, our friends, um, they say the food is great. That might just be because we've got this wonderful clay soil that imparts wonderful flavor. But also people enjoy the experience of coming here. Um, I try to deliver vegetables and people politely decline and say, no, we'll come to the farm to pick up. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so I think people really enjoy the experience of of knowing where their food comes from and seeing that change throughout the season. Um, and the veg changes throughout the season as a result. Um, I think it's not something you can, you can taste necessarily, but you can feel it. You've done your PhD in food policy, having mm -hmm. now run a market garden for three, four years more. Yeah, four. Would you do it differently? Running the market garden? No, the PhD. Or the pol okay. <laughs> uh, Do it faster so I could get it out of the way. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, a big element that I didn't have the, the knowledge of at the time when I did it was, well, and a, a big theme that wants to be a published paper is the non-existence of farmers or the lack of representation of farmers and growers in local level food policy making. Because, surprise, surprise, they're too busy. They're really, really busy people. Um, so as academics, we go to conferences, food policy conferences, and say, everybody should be doing this in food and farming, um, but we're talking to ourselves as academics. We're not talking to farmers because they're not there. They're, they're at work. Um, so it was this kind of interesting disconnect that I noticed. You know, we'd look around at conferences and, and where were the farmers who were supposed to do this work that we were suggesting. Um, so, um, yeah, I got, I got doing it, but I think I would have probably had a, a much larger focus on, on the farmers and, and what their representation was or lack of rep representation meant to policy development at the local level. Do we need to see changes in food policy? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, at, um, I think in the UK, a lot of decisions are made without, without any discussions. They're, they're made with particular interests in mind. Um, and biodiversity and system health and soil health are um, are in the back seat. Uh, so I think that the values that we need to build a better future and the future that we want need to be put center stage. Um, that's an issue. And I think asking farmers, since we're expecting farmers to deliver these changes largely, um, it has to be a partnership. And it can't be politicians exclusively making decisions. It has to be communities and citizens and farmers together. Sounds really optimistic, doesn't it? By partnership, do you mean? Well, some people say that it's by... Some people, when they say partnership like that, what they mean is that we should be paying the farmers to look after the land better. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's certainly an aspect of it. Um, I think having the voices of farmers at the table as well, uh, multi-stakeholder partnerships that bring farmers into these discussions rather than having it be a series of decisions that are made at higher levels that they have to respond to rather than being involved with in the first place to even discuss if they're practical. And there will be tensions, um, but I think ultimately there's a, there's a lot at stake right now. And I think farmers are aware um, but it has to be a process of uh, of making change together. We used to say, could I, I used to work for the regional council, and one of the things that we always used to struggle with is that you couldn't really tell from the from the gate over the fence things like the the soil health. I mean, you you can because the 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 the, the notion of a well kept farm. Is kind of the opposite to the the notion of that that biodiversity, that sort of what we now think of as a healthy systems farm. And so, for for traditional farmers, the well, conventional farmers, the the notions of this biodiversity and all this sort of stuff are really rankle. Because you, uh, yeah, I know what you mean, and I think you're right that it's made more palatable by a subsidy. Yeah, definitely makes it look nicer when you know that it's making it you money. I would think. We talked a little bit before about COVID. How has COVID affected the the food 
supply. Did did you have the the same thing that we did here that the food supply was considered essential and essentially wasn't affected? Um, no, your government was far more organized than ours was. Um, no, it was a, a bit chaotic for a while. Um, with lockdowns, people were struggling to access grocery stores. Um, food was running out on shelves because people were panic buying because government messaging wasn't consistent or uh, well thought out. So the food supply chain was um, was affected for many weeks. Um, the food delivery systems became paramount, but they weren't prepared just for the the extent of need. Um, the government's response was to basically wash their hands of the responsibility of it and leave it to corporate grocery retailers. Um, so that was problematic. And it meant because a lot of people were just scared to go to the grocery store that they, and, uh, and obviously the stocks weren't there, um, they got in contact with their local farmers. And I think it has actually resulted in a really significant reconnection with local food and, and producers. And long may that last, I hope. We've seen lots of changes over the last year. Are there other changes that you think will stick, that you hope will stick? Um, I think it has shaken people in a significant way. And it has been long enough that a lot of people have formed new habits um, in terms of their purchasing habits. Um, in our community, we're developing a local food resilience plan where we didn't have a community food plan before. Um, so I approached the council uh, for example, a couple of years ago to say, hey, we've got Brexit coming up. Are we going to talk about a food Brexit plan? And I didn't hear back. Um, so last year I said, so we didn't talk about that food Brexit plan, but we have had a dry run with COVID and it hasn't gone so great. Can we talk yet? Um, and the council said, we think a food plan is a great idea. <laughs> so we've made one. Um, so it's worked out really nicely. Uh, we've got the support of the council and I think a lot of communities across the UK are realizing that um, they feel quite let down by the central government. And so they want to take it into their own hands in developing local food initiatives. Um, the precedent was set in the UK by the Sustainable Food Places Initiative, uh, which was developed in 2013, I believe. Um, and it's an organization that helps uh, develop local food policies, basically. Um, it encourages communities to come together as civil society and their local councils in partnership so that they can develop sustainable local food plans. Um, they have conferences in normal years that bring those groups together, um, and they have almost 60 members, I think, at this point. Um, so there's a lot of shared knowledge in that network and a lot of momentum. So... Um, I think COVID has really, um, really encouraged a lot of communities to take that leap and to be proactive. And presumably that move to greater resilience, that regenerative focus, will better set us up for this, the next disruption. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, as you said, local does not necessarily equate sustainable, which you, you hinted at earlier in our conversation. So I think having come from COVID and Brexit, looped back to COVID, still experiencing Brexit and seeing climate change on the horizon, um, people are, are taking things a lot more seriously, not just in terms of how they get food, but how it's produced. So hopefully the, um, the more responsible end of production is uh, a key thing in our next stage of development in food resilience. And having that positive vision for the future, 
does put you in a good position for dealing with the what did you just say then triple covid ongoing brexit and and other other things are you a positive person um my husband's probably laughing um uh, i think if all else fails we're building an ark on our property so um we're uh cautiously optimistic maybe we're we're trying to do what we can in our community to support people um i think Ooh, I don't know. I'm dodging around that question. I think maybe pessimism drives my actions and uh, and just, you know, the fear of all the chaos that's to come. Um, but I enjoy it day to day, which makes me happy and optimistic. But you're not taking a fear-based approach where it's everybody else's fault. And you're also not taking the, the possible negative approach to resilience, which is the, 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 the blinkered getting into your castle and drawing up the drawbridge. You're actively doing something no. that's building community. Yeah, and Bishop's Castle is a, a really exceptionally close community. Uh, we came here, again, as, as outsiders, you know, those, those people from London. And when we said that we were setting up a market garden, we had somebody come up to us and say, we've been waiting 10 years for you to come. Welcome. This is wonderful. And just the reception that we've gotten has been amazing. And because they know that we have a focus on the, just the health and well-being of the community and the connections in the community and that we're involved, um, that, I think... That carries a lot of credit in any community. Um, so it's been it's been a really wonderful place to to do this experiment. I have some questions to end the show with. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Does it have to be a market garden success? It can be anything you like. Um, well, I think having having juggled a few major things and uh, and come out on top, uh, finishing the PhD having a, a baby and starting a business and shaping the landscape those those have been pretty cool those have been big ones um that for some ridiculous reason we jumped in all at the same time with um i think the biggest success is that i'm able to show our daughter that we're we're living in a way that aligns with our values and um that that we are we are being good citizens and good ancestors by um making more mindful choices. You described sustainability as being a bit wibbly wobbly. What's your go-to definition of it? And if not that, what do you use instead? Uh, oh goodness, it's um, it's messy. It's subjective. Um, you know, all of those academic things. Um, I sort of simplify it by saying, you know, our community, our local economy, and our our landscape. But I think. I, that's the really simple version that I give to people who are sort of out of the, the loop. Um, talking to me on the farm, I will, I will tell you everything that this landscape means to us and the, the future vision for it and what it represents to, to taking care of, of our space. Um, we don't have a lot of space. We've got two acres, but we are really attempting um, wider stewardship um, we take care of the space, but I think it's it's also influencing people to see landscape and health and our interactions and connections with the environment in a different way. Until you just said environment there, you were saying landscape, almost personifying landscape. But that's very different from a environment being not us and nature being out there somewhere. 
by using the term landscape, it's very much, it's, it's not just something separate. It is the place where we are. Yeah. Um, your First Nations are like our First Nations in Canada. It's our, our, our creator, our uh, everything, our, everything that we're connected to that has made us. It is a being. The land is a being. It's a living thing. Um, I think until we realize that, that really profound truth, um, it's going to be very, very hard to get people to relate. But um, the more I am in contact with our, with our land and our landscape and our, our environment in the broad sense, um, the more that gets reinforced. And it's, it goes across time. It's, it's a pretty deeply connected consideration. What's your superpower? I acquire chickens like nobody else. How does one acquire chickens? Um, you let the world know through a series of, uh, of indicators that you are a complete sucker. And they will say, my chicken looks sad or is alone, um, or I'm not able to take care of it anymore because I'm not feeling good. And then they bring you their chickens or ducks or guinea fowl or other poultry. And you're happy with that? I'm pretty happy. My husband's not. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, I would like to be a much better activist um, because I am generally quite quiet and, um, and I just kind of assume nobody wants to hear from me because there's so many other voices out there in the world that are shouting quite loudly. Um, I guilt myself about this quite often because as an academic, it's part of my, uh, part of the expectation that I, as a quote unquote expert in my field, uh, use that voice and that knowledge to educate other people. Um, I think through what I am doing, um, I am probably an activist, but I, I should probably be much louder about my beliefs. Um, I just assume it would put people off, but you know what, maybe I, I just need to get over that. If you could wave a magic wand and have a miracle occur, what would you, what would you have happen? Redistribution of wealth from the wealthiest people on the planet to address climate change and global poverty for a more egalitarian society. And what's or the biggest chicken house? <laughs> and what's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Gosh, um, that's a really good question. Um, I would like to, I'd like to get the local schools to use us as a resource regularly and build curriculum in our local schools. Um, I think that would be a, a wonderful first step. Yes. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Gosh. Don't have a baby when you're trying to start a market garden or don't start a market garden if you've just had a baby. <laughs> and finishing a PhD. Well, yeah, that was, that was also in there, definitely. <laughs> but you came, out, plates, you came out the other side of that and you are doing incredible work. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
been listening to Sustainable Lands Regeneration on radio. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. Tonight's sustainable lens has been Daphne Ducrow on Little Woodbatch Market Garden in Bishop's Castle in Shropshire. We're listening out to Florence and Machine Landscape. We are broadcast every Thursday evening at 7pm on Otago Access Radio and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. We are also building up a searchable archive on sustainablelens.org. That was Sustainable Lens. I'm Samuel Mann. I hope you enjoyed the show. At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.